would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, that's the first book in the New Testament. And if you're looking in the red Bibles and the chairs around you, our passage, Matthew chapter 28, comes on page 835. Perhaps not the most usual passage to be thinking about on the first Sunday of Advent. Perhaps that's true, although I'm going to try to persuade you differently today. We're looking at what is often referred to as the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, I'm going to read from verse 16 down through verse 20. Matthew tells us that now the eleven disciples went to, to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the time to reflect on the arrival, the first advent of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And I pray that as we not only reflect on that, but also reflect on his second coming, his second advent, that you would fill us with hope. That you would fill us with a sense of the mission that you've given us as your people to be at work here in this place through your power, through your presence. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the greatest expeditions in the history of the world took place in 1914. Ernest Shackleton attempted to cross Antarctica. By going over the South Pole, Shackleton and his crew of 29 men left a whaling station at the South Georgia station in December of 2014, and they didn't touch land again for 497 days. About a month after they set their ship into the waters, their ship, the Endurance, the ship was trapped in an ice pack. As they were stranded there for 10 months, eventually the, sh- the ice began to shift and the ship was crushed. The crew set out onto the ice to make it to the closest station. They endured temperatures of 50 below zero, air temperature with wind chills that got ridiculously cold. And they had very little to eat except for the rations that they had brought with them and then the occasional seal or penguin that they came across along the way. They eventually reached the end of the ice pack and they put the three lifeboats that they had been carrying with them from their ship, the Endurance, into the ocean in order to sail about 100 miles to an enormous rock formation that was coming out of the sea. When they reached it, they set up their camp And they began to rebuild a boat with some of the materials that they brought with them from the Endurance. 
Shackleton and five of his men set sail for the closest whaling station, which was 800 miles away. They were exposed to wind, water, ice, and huge waves for 17 days, navigating with nothing except for a compass and a sextant. Eventually, they came to land on the island where the whaling station was located, but they, had, they were forced to land on the opposite side of the island from where the station was. And three of the men were too exhausted to continue. And so Shackleton and the other two men began across the island to get to the station. They were equipped with only a compass and about 90 feet of rope. They had no map and no knowledge of the land. They walked for 36 hours straight. They crossed over glaciers. They scaled a 5,000 feet, a 5,000 foot peak. And eventually they got trapped on a ridge that was surrounded by mist and they couldn't see. And in order to avoid freezing to death, they sat down on the top of the ridge on the slope of a sheet of ice and slid for about a mile before they came to a stop. Eventually they made it to the whaling station and they were able to describe where the men were that they had left and ships were sent out to rescue them. All the men were found exactly where Shackleton said that they would be. I want you to think about this this morning. Why? Did all of those men follow Shackleton? Why were they willing to go where he was directing them? I think one of the main reasons was because they wanted to live. They wanted to survive and they were so focused and motivated by that important and compelling purpose, wanting to live that they were willing to follow Shackleton wherever he would take them. And I would suggest to you this morning that the Lord Jesus Christ has given his church an even greater, more compelling purpose and mission. One that creates the same kind of focus and determination and motivation and meaning for us. And it's often referred to as the Great Commission. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that might seem like an unusual thing for us to think about during the season of Advent. Perhaps that's true. But I don't think it should be the case. Throughout church history, the season of Advent has been celebrated primarily for the purpose of, yes, thinking about the Lord Jesus' first arrival, His first Advent, but primarily to be thinking about His second coming, His second Advent. Not so much thinking and only about as if we're pretending that we are the first disciples and, and waiting for Jesus to arrive. We do reflect on Jesus' first coming. But the church has used the four Sundays leading up to Christmas often to reflect on and prepare for the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I want us to focus on this season of Advent this year is what Jesus' disciples should be doing to prepare for and to get ready for His second Advent, His second coming. Jesus gave His disciples specific instructions, a specific charge, a specific calling, a specific commission for what we are to be doing as we are waiting for His second coming. 
He has given us a commission for what we are to be doing as we prepare for him to come back. And it's called the Great Commission. So we're going to be studying the Great Commission over these four Sundays of Advent. Today, what I want us to look at is the commission itself. And what we'll see is that as Jesus gives this commission to his disciples, he gives a mission for every single one of his disciples. He gives ministry for every one of his disciples to participate in. And he gives us the motivation to do it. So first of all, what is the mission that he gives to every single disciple? Verse 16 of Matthew 28 says, Now the eleven disciples, Judas was no longer with them. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, and then we get the words of the Great Commission. I think that many in the church make a couple different mistakes as we think about the Great Commission. One is that we often think and assume that the Great Commission was given only for the original 11 disciples. That certainly is the context here in Matthew chapter 28. It was the 11 who gathered uh, to Jesus and Jesus spoke to them these words that we call the Great Commission. But we know from the book of Acts and from the New Testament letters and from church historians that this commission that Jesus gave to his disciples went way beyond the 11 the very fact that we're all sitting here in this room in Rochester, Minnesota in 2019 as God's disciples is proof of the fact that the commission went beyond these 11 men that it was originally given to. If you are a disciple of Jesus, then the mission that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 28 is for you as well. Another wrong assumption that we often make about the Great Commission is that it's just for the leaders of the church, just for the pastors, the elders, the deacons, those who have been specially trained. But I would say to you, and I believe that Jesus is saying to us that every single disciple of Jesus is called to live out this mission that is given to us by him. If you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter four, it's on page 977 in the red Bibles around you. Ephesians chapter 4, we see Paul giving us some flesh on the bones of the Great Commission, if you will. This is another passage that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11. And just look here at verses 11 and 12. Paul says that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to do what? To equip the saints. Who is that? The disciples of Jesus. For the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. God gave the leaders of the church a mission that they would seek to equip the disciples of the church, the saints of the church, so that they would go out and do the work of the ministry, so that they would go out and do the Great Commission. So if you're a disciple of Jesus here this morning, then the Great Commission is for you. It is something that we are to be about as we wait for the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does the commission look like? Well, there are lots of books that have written that have been written, lots of commentaries about this passage, about what it means to fulfill the Great Commission, what it means and looks like. 
And there are all kinds of different emphases if you look at all these different resources. Some focus on the fact that we're to be going out. I mean, after it all, it does say that we are to go. Some focus on the fact that we are to be baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It does say that. Some focus mostly on the fact that we are to be teaching all the, what Jesus has commanded us. It certainly says that as well. But in fact, there's actually, and you can't really see that this much in the English translation, but there's actually only one command here in Matthew chapter 28, verses uh, uh, 18 through 20. There's only one command, there's only one imperative, and that is make disciples. That's the focus of the Great Commission, that God's people are to go out and to make disciples. All of the other verbs that are listed here are participles. They are complementing that one command, that one imperative of making disciples. Those other verbs are describing what it looks like for God's people to go out and to make disciples. And how is it described? It's described that we are to make disciples by reaching out to people with the gospel. That's what it means to go. We are called to go, therefore, as you are going is how it's actually translated. As you are going out, as you are going out to the ends of the world, you are to take the gospel. You are to be baptizing those who respond as you go and share the gospel and people come to faith in Christ. Then you are to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Part of what it means to make disciples is to go out and to reach unbelievers with the gospel. But there's also an equipping part of it as well. It's not only reaching people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's also equipping believers with the word of God. It says that we are to be teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. In other words, we're to be discipling these people that are coming to faith in Christ teaching them, training them, instructing them, and modeling for them what the Word of God is. That's what we are to use. It's what Jesus has given us. It's what He has commanded us. It's included in the Word. This is what the Great Commission, making disciples, is all about. It's about reaching people with the Gospel and equipping them with the truth of the Word. Now, if you'll flip back to chapter four of Ephesians, you'll see that Paul gives us a picture of that. He gives us a picture of the Great Commission working itself out in the life of God's people. We're going to be spending the next three Sundays looking at Ephesians four more de- in more detail. So I'm only going to just very quickly and briefly show you how, how Paul gives us the picture of the Great Commission unfolding in our midst of reaching and equipping of making disciples. He talks to us about the fact that as God's people, we are to be growing in our knowledge and our love for God. You can see that in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. We read that 
they are to be, the leaders are to be equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Part of what it means to make disciples, part of what it means to reach and equip is to help ourselves and others to grow in our knowledge and our love for God. Leaders are to be equipping people for building up the body of Christ, Paul says, helping people to attain the knowledge of the Son of God, who He is and what He has done, to help people become mature in the faith, to be stable in the faith, to help people to be able to speak the truth, to know the truth and to speak it in love, both being motivated by love and being guided by love. This is part of what it means to make disciples, that we help people to grow in their knowledge and their love for the Lord. But there's another aspect of making disciples, of reaching and equipping, and that is not only growing in our knowledge and our love for the Lord, but growing in our knowledge and our love for others. Did you notice here in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, how many times the the collective words are used? The beginning of verse 12, we talk about the saints. The end of verse 12, it talks about building up the body of Christ. The beginning of verse 13, it talks about we all. And in verse 13, it speaks about the unity that we have in faith. And especially when we look at verse 16, we see Paul using this analogy of the body. Verse 16 says, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul's talking here about the idea of of making disciples, of seeing people reached with the gospel and then equipped by the word of God. And part of what that means is that we grow in our knowledge and our love of other people. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 when he was asked about the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbors as yourself. There is a third part of what it means here to, to make disciples. And that is not only growing in our knowledge and our love for God and our knowledge and our love for others, but growing in our ability and our desire to serve in the kingdom of God. After all, Paul, again, back in Ephesians, talks about the fact that the, the leaders of the church are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The serving in the church, serving in the kingdom of God. We also see it in verse 16 again that the body is joined together by every joint with which it is equipped. That's you and me. That is all of God's people, the the disciples of the Lord Jesus being equipped, being motivated to go out and to serve the Lord in his kingdom, accomplishing his purposes together. 
This is this is a snapshot that we're going to be spending more time looking at over the next three Sundays of what the Great Commission is all about, about making disciples, reaching and equipping. But I want you to notice here that Jesus not only tells us back in Matthew chapter 28 what the purpose of the church is, the Great Commission, but he also tells us something about who. After all, he says that we are to make disciples of whom? Of all the nations. It's not limited to just the people that we know. It's not limited just to the people that we like. It's not limited just to the people that we're comfortable around. It's not limited by any of those things. We are to prepare for the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ by reaching and equipping the nations for Jesus. Now, it took the disciples, the first disciples, a while to get that. We know from the scriptures and from church history that initially the disciples, after Jesus gave them this commission, didn't leave Jerusalem. They huddled together where they felt safe, where they felt comfortable what they, with what they knew. But we also know that Jesus spoke to them directly to tell them where they were to go. In Acts chapter 1, we read that Jesus says to his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, my disciples, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It took them a while. They started slow. They were afraid. They stayed close to what they knew and were comfortable with. And we're just like them. That's our temptation. For us only to be comfortable with that which we know. And those who are comfortable around us. With people that we know. With people that like us. It's something that we need to be reflecting on all the time. I wonder if you'll ask yourself, even as I ask myself, how many unbelievers do you know? And maybe more particularly, how many unbelievers do you know who aren't of the same ethnicity that you are? Uh, of the same socioeconomic background that you are? Uh, of the same cultural traditions that you come from? Now, there's nothing wrong with reaching and equipping and making disciples with people that we know and where we're comfortable, but we can't just stop there. It can't be an excuse for us not to reach outside of the places where we're comfortable. Now, I know that this is a lot in terms of thinking about this big picture of the Great Commission, and that's why we're going to spend the next three Sundays unpacking it some more. But let me give you just a quick recap of what we've said so far. We're in the season of Advent. It's meant for us to reflect on the second coming, the second advent of Jesus. We're supposed to use this time to think about what we're supposed to be doing to prepare for the return of our Lord. And Jesus gave his disciples marching orders for what they were to be doing until he returned. He gave them a purpose. He gave them a commission. He gave them a mission. He called it the Great Commission. To make disciples of all nations. To reach unbelievers with the gospel. And to equip believers with the truth of the word. 
And what that looks like is growing in our knowledge and our love for the Lord for others and our desire and ability to serve in the kingdom of God. This is the calling. This is the commission. This is the mission. This is the ministry of every single disciple of Jesus. And so I'll just ask you, how are we doing? How are we doing with this calling? I think that we can say that the evangelical church in general, and perhaps our church in particular, and perhaps each of us individually, have a lot of room for improvement. And in that, we're not that much different from the first disciples that received these words from Jesus in the first century. After all, notice what happened with them. Go back into the text. Verse 16, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. That's good. Jesus had told them to go somewhere, and they went. And when they saw him, they worshipped. That's good. When you see Jesus, you should worship him. But... We read at the end of verse 17, some doubted. The word there that is used for doubt is very interesting. It's very unusual. It's not the usual word that's used when we speak about what we mean about doubting. It's actually only used one other place. That's in Matthew chapter 14 where Peter is walking on the water toward Jesus and he begins to sink. And the same word for doubting is used there that's used here. The word here is probably not best translated as doubting, but as hesitation. The word here is not specifically talking about the fact that they weren't believing Jesus or they didn't have faith in Jesus. It's talking about the fact that they were hesitating. They weren't all in. And so we can certainly relate, can we not? Hesitation and half-heartedness of the first disciples is something that we understand. Often we hesitate to be about the great commission of making disciples. But the good news this morning is that the the first disciples' hesitation, and ours as well, doesn't surprise Jesus. That's why He gave them not only the purpose, the commission, the ministry, the, the mission that He wanted them to do, but He also gave them a powerful motivation for why they should be joyful and hopeful as they go out. Look at what he tells them. First of all, can we just say that the command itself should be motivation enough? Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He gives them a command. And can we just start by saying that should be enough motivation for us as God's people? That our Lord and Savior, the one who gave himself for us. When we think of all that he has done for us, shouldn't it be enough when he asks us to do something that we would simply do it? We should be delighted to do what he asks us to do. But we know that unfortunately that's not enough, often the case. And thankfully, Jesus gives them and us more motivation. He tells them that as they go out to make disciples, as they go out to reach unbelievers with the gospel, and as they go out to equip believers with the word of truth, they go out with the very power of Jesus. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said to them, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, how much authority is that? How much authority is all the authority of heaven and earth? And it's been given to Jesus and he's giving us a commission for what we're supposed to be about. And what he is telling them there is all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And yes, you haven't seen it all as I've been living in your midst. Jesus didn't didn't decide to reveal all of the authority in heaven and earth that was at his disposal as he lived on this earth. But now, as he has died and been resurrected and is going back to the father, ascending to the right hand of the father, he is saying, All authority that has been given to me is going to flow through me to you as you go out to do the Great Commission. The same power that silenced storms and multiplied food and healed the sick and raised the dead and even was at work in the creation of the universe is the same power that Jesus is giving to us as we go out to do the Great Commission of making disciples. So here's the question. If we actually believed this, how would it change us going out? How would it change the conversations that we have if we really believed that the power of Jesus is at work through us and the commission that he's given to us? How would it change the places that we would be willing to go? I think about Sean and Heather DuPont and their family who, as many of you know, are uh, changing mission fields. And they're going to a new mission field. I don't think it's an over-exaggeration to say that their lives could very often be in danger. But they believe that the power of Jesus is going through them and about them as they go out to make disciples. I think of our... One of our PCA pastors in our presbytery, Ross Haverhalls, who's a chaplain in the federal men's prison in in, uh, Sandstone, Minnesota, up near Hinckley. How he tells us that on almost a regular basis, he is told by Muslim inmates that they if they can and when they have the opportunity, they will take his life. But he knows that the power of Jesus is at work through him in taking the gospel to reach and equip disciples. If that's not enough motivation for us, Jesus goes on at the end of the Great Commission in verse 20 to give them one last motivation. I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. As we go out to fulfill Jesus' commission, his mission for us until his second arrival, his second advent, he promises not only that we will have access to his power, but we have access to Jesus himself. He promises to be with us. We don't go anywhere. We don't talk to anyone. We don't do anything on our own. Jesus is always with us. And that's the message that we remember during Advent and Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. And what Jesus is telling the disciples, it's not just in my first Advent, my first coming that I am with you. I am with you until the end of the age. Until I come 
again. And if we really believed that, how would it change how we go out making disciples? How would it change the conversations that we have? How would it address our fears? How would it change how we pray? I want you to think back to the story of Shackleton. I suggested to you and I asked the question, what made those men decide to follow him? I suggested to you that one of the main reasons that his men followed him was because they wanted to live. They wanted to stay alive. They were focused on that important and compelling purpose, staying alive. But I would suggest to you that perhaps there is another reason, perhaps a greater reason for why they followed Shackleton. It's because Shackleton got out of the boat and led them. He was with them. And he had the power to get them to safety. He cared deeply for his men. He loved them. And he was willing to go with them, even if it meant he had to go to his death. He was willing to do whatever was needed to get help, even if it meant he would give his own life trying. And he demonstrated to them that he had the power to get them to safety. And they would have never have made it without him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are a disciple of Jesus. And he loves you with an everlasting love. He has known you and He has loved you from before the foundation of the world. And He has promised that He will be with you. He is with you. He always has been and always will be. And He didn't just promise that He would try to redeem us and to keep us safe or to die trying. He promised that He would die for us in our place. To restore our relationship with the Lord God Almighty. And he had the power to make you his very own treasured and prized beloved disciple. This is the one who has commissioned us. This is the one who sends us out as his people with the purpose of making disciples of the nations. And if we understand that he is the one who has loved us from before the foundation of the world and has promised to give us his presence to be with us and to use his power to accomplish his purposes through us, then would that not fill us with an incredible hope and an incredible joy to be about the work of going out and fulfilling the Great Commission. There's no greater mission or ministry. There's no greater motivation that we have to accomplish it. And that seems like a pretty good thing for us to reflect on during the season of Advent. Let's pray together. Our Father, again, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you recorded these words of Jesus given to his first disciples. What a comfort it is to us to not have to wonder what we're supposed to be doing as we wait for the second advent of our Savior. Thank you for giving us this incredible mission, this ministry, and filling us with an incredible motivation to accomplish it because we know that we are not doing it on our own. I pray, Father, that during this season of waiting for your arrival again, 
that you would fill us with hope and joy and a sense of purpose of accomplishing the great commission of making disciples of the nations. What a wonderful opportunity you have given to us. Fill us with the hope of you accomplishing that through us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, wrote these words. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with it, wait for it with patience. As God's people in 2019 were living between the advents of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we wait for his second advent, we are to be a people of hope. Not just wishful, not just a desire that something uncertain would happen, but people of true hope, hope that is anchored in something eternal, hope that is anchored in the promise and the faithfulness of the Lord. He has promised that he would help us and strengthen us to strengthen our hope and to strengthen our faith. And so he gave us this table to that end. He gave it as a reminder to us of his promise. To assure us of his grace through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and your hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. His body and his blood that was given for us as his disciples to reconcile us to our Father in Heaven. If that's your hope, if that's what you cling to, if that is what you know is true and you believe, and you have professed that hope here at Trinity or another church that believes the Gospel is by grace alone and Christ alone, then as the elements are coming around, eat and drink. Be reminded of the wonderful hope that is ours in Christ. And also be encouraged that as we come in faith, the Holy Spirit's at work. Strengthening our hope. Strengthening our faith. So that as we go out this week, we would have the strength and the hope and the faith to be able to live as His disciples. Making disciples of the nations. Let's pause for a moment and ask the Lord to bless this table and use it for His purposes. Our Father in Heaven, we do thank You for this table, the Lord's Supper. 
We thank you that it is a means of grace. It's a means by which you show us the grace that you have accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. We also thank you, Father, that you use it to strengthen us. We, we need strength. We need help. And so we thank you that through the work of the Holy Spirit as we come in faith, you do strengthen us and fill us with greater hope and faith. We pray that as we eat and drink, that you would be at work and that you would remind us of these glorious truths that are anchored in your word. Send us out, Father, with hope and joy and thanksgiving. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.